This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome in to another edition of the Bartholomew Town Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. Today, we welcome back the Executive Director of the National Education Association, Rhode Island Chapter, Bob Walsh. All right, so this is kind of continuing our vertical conversation on back to school in Rhode Island, education in Rhode Island in light of COVID-19. On Friday, we had the commissioner of the Rhode Island Department of Education, Angelica Infante-Green, on the program. You can hear that wherever you're listening right now, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Alexa, ripodcast.com, wherever that may be, a different perspective on this same topic that we're going to discuss today with Bob Walsh. So there's also snippets of conversations with the president of the Providence Teachers Union, Mary Beth Calabro, superintendent of Providence Schools, Harrison Peters. That's in the Facebook group. You can get to that by going to btown.stream. All of that kind of dates back to right around the beginning of back to school here in Rhode Island. And of course, every Wednesday, you can tune in also at btown.stream to Governor Raimondo's weekly COVID-19 address in which she's flanked by the director of the Department of Health, Dr. Nicole Alexander-Scott and Commissioner Infante Green of the Department of Education. I'm there each week asking questions. And look, we've obviously been really zeroed in on education and back to school for the better part of the last month. And I think we'll stay there probably, right? There's a lot going on in the state just announced that two of the three field hospitals are going to be closed or in the process of being closed right now. That's a pretty significant move on the part of the uh, the administration. Of course, a lot of people were saying, hey, the reason those field hospitals were built obviously was to deal with overflow back when COVID first appeared here in Rhode Island. But the reason they stayed open, at least the argument was, look, we want to have these in place for a potential resurgence that may occur in the winter 2020 into the uh, the 2021 calendar year. So it looks like number crunching, gut check, whatever it may be, we'll get information that is more specific as to why two of those three field hospitals are closing likely on Wednesday, one o'clock at the governor's press briefing. But today, continuing the dialogue on education, I've been hearing from a lot of you out there, a lot of teachers, a lot of parents, and even some students. Send me an email anytime, bill at ripodcast.com or tweet at me at Bill Bartholomew. Really happy to get your feedback on how back to school is going in your community. And it's been varied, you know, and it's been varied within communities and it's been varied within specific experiences. Some people who are doing um, whether it's distance learning or a hybrid version of that have been giving it two thumbs up saying this is great. The opportunity is uh, great for me to be able to or my kids to be able to um, kind of learn in an independent or unique fashion. Other people are saying, nope, not going to work to be distance learning. And I guess that's really the the nuances. You really have to be surgical when you're dealing with education. Everyone's got unique circumstances and challenges and and strengths, right? So Love to hear from you on this matter and any. Feel free to reach out at any point in time. Okay, let's get right to it. Bob Walsh, the executive director of the NEARI, right here on B Town. Welcome back, Bob. We're back to school in Rhode Island. It's been there's been uh, you don't want to say finger pointing, but there's there has been in the media, in, in on social media, and in person. And you, you, there's one narrative coming from the commissioner and the administration that. Look, there's some there's some cases popping up. There's some infrastructure challenges that have been there for a long time, but we're doing what we can. Boots, uh, pardon me, suspenders and belt approach to make it as safe as possible for students to go back, teachers to go back, staff to go back. Then you have on the other side, you hear from AFT and NEA membership that look, this is 
not where it needs to be from a cleanliness perspective and just an overall plan perspective. So where today from the NEA side, where, where do you feel things are? Well, it literally is classroom by classroom, building by building, district by district. And, um, you know, 50 years of uh, neglected infrastructure have come home to roost, certainly. Uh, you can't, and, and we've taken a very balanced view on this because we had folks, so this wasn't like the pension fight where everybody agreed that what happened was a horrible thing. Um, we've got folks who sincerely believe that their districts, in cooperation with the members, I mean, you know, local leadership, teachers and support professionals meeting with district management, coming up with a plan that makes sense and realizing the pandemic may cause the doors to shut uh, relatively quickly, but giving it a, a legitimate, um, safe uh, try to reopen. And others made on the other end of the spectrum, Cumberland, which is one of ours, and Warwick, which is uh, an AFT district, made the decision. They studied their infrastructure and they said, we simply cannot open. We are not safe to open. And I applaud them that decision as well. And we've got a lot of folks in the middle where um, they've literally had to shut off sections of buildings or rooms. And the ironic thing, or one of the many ironies in this, some of these plans only work because so many students have opted to do distance learning in the first place. And the reason you can figure out the social distancing on the buses and in the classrooms is 30 or 40 or as many as 50% of the students are at home. Um, and if they all opted on the same day to come back, then you'd have to close because you could not have the appropriate uh, safety precautions in place. And I don't think folks fully understand that. And some of the workarounds that are in place now will not work uh, when the snow come or frankly, when the rains eventually return to us. Uh, and so it's, it's scary. And we're seeing, not shockingly, uh, every single time there's a three-day weekend, two weeks later, we have a spike in cases. We had the equivalent of a four-day weekend on Labor Day because we had election day immediately after Labor Day. Um, and at the same time, uh, a lot of college students returned to Rhode Island, and predictably, we're seeing um, an increase in cases. There is no difference between a 17-year-old high school senior and an 18-year-old college freshman in terms of personally feeling invulnerable to <laughs> what goes on around them in the world. And and. You know, I joke about it a little, but it's it's the truth of it. Uh, and we're going to see an increase in, in cases. And if it gets to the point where we have to make the decision to close, at least a lot of teachers will have personally met their students, which makes distance learning a little easier. Uh, so we're we're waiting for the vaccine like everybody else. Well, it's interesting because I, I asked the governor about a month ago now, as they were beginning to roll out the plans, you know, is, is, are these plans for going back intended to be short term, literally for that, for, for kids to meet each other, or re re engage with each other, for teachers to meet their students before the inevitable, just based on the idea of, you know, whether it's tents or open windows. And then just this morning, I asked commissioner Infante green, what the plan is for when it gets cold. I mean, it's been chilly these, these few weeks and she yeah. said, well, you know, we can open the windows and blast the heat. That kind of reminds me of driving around in the end of September, sometimes at night where you do that. But yeah. is that on your mind? Is that something realistic where you'd be willing to open windows, your, your members op open windows, blast heat, get the air circulation going as best as possible. Does that seem sustainable? Uh, 
probably not writ large across the entire state. Are there buildings where you can get away with that? Are there, frankly, because of poor infrastructure, there are buildings where that happens anyway, where they can't regulate the heat, where the heat is cranking away, so it would be 85 degrees in a classroom, but for the windows being open. So we could take advantage of the flaws in the system for some of those classrooms, but that can't, you can't make your public policy on that. Right. Uh, and, you know, there are some very simple, predictable things that happened. Uh, the schools were not, and, and you know, for, for the folks who are listening, we started a little late because I had uh, a, a circuit breaker go off here because I have someone working on the house and used too much power. If you put 10 amp air purifiers in every classroom in the wing of a school building, it's probably beyond the wired electrical capacity. So what Warwick is doing is they have to upgrade their electrical capacity in many of their schools before they can put the air purifiers in. And that's simply, you know, it takes time and it takes money. Uh, I think at the end of it, we'll be better off because even absent a pandemic, it's probably a really good idea to have better air quality in our schools and to finally pay attention to the infrastructure needs. Um, there's a law in the books that we went to court over, actually, that says every year, four different entities have to sign off on every school building, your local building inspector, uh, the local fire chief, and statewide, both the Department of Health and the Department of Labor and Training to Occupational Safety and Health. They're supposed to certify that all these buildings are ready. And that apparently has never been enforced. We went to court in Bristol Warren on the issue. And they admitted, the lawyer for the uh, school committee said, no, we've never really done that. Um, and we asked, uh, you know, the judge to rule that the new guidelines uh, should be incorporated into those Department of Health uh, regulations and therefore be judged accordingly. And, and the judge correctly said, uh, disappointingly to us, but correctly ruled that they never incorporated the guidelines into official regulations and therefore they don't have the force of law. That should be an eye opener for everybody. So we are, we are, you know, flying by the seat of our pants right now. It's interesting to think about how many things we're going to come away with from the pandemic that expose. Obviously, there's major things like health inequity, the, the furthering of the conversation around school infrastructure problems, but just the the process by which we oversee and um, implement law or lack thereof law when it comes to those, I guess, again, back to oversight of these buildings. Yeah, maybe we'll finally have the conversation. Uh, we need a statewide approach in many things to education. One of the things I was personally happy about is we now have more or less a statewide school calendar, which never happened before. And if a statewide school calendar, then you can start to coordinate professional development activities across school districts, as well as transportation uh, and everything else. And I think that's a really good thing. Uh, another thing that we need to have a conversation about is looking at our school infrastructure on a statewide basis. And uh, we do not have adequate state support for our public schools. We over rely on the property taxes it is now. But one of the things, uh, there are a couple of things you can do to try and support education on a statewide basis. And they have, and one, I've always said we could have a statewide approach to healthcare uh, for all uh, educators, but another is have a statewide approach to infrastructure and finally break the tie in all these communities that each need half an elementary building and cannot get their act together to build one and close to the border of one city or town and share it. 
It's not that hard. Everyone assumes we would be the objectors, and I welcome the question coming to us. We have four regionalized school districts already. We have two other school districts that send their um, uh, secondary students to uh, other districts for that education. We can figure this out, and maybe this will force the question finally. Right. I mean, the the Equidnik Island model comes to mind when you look at the condition of Rogers High School and it just seems like, for lack of a better term, either xenophobia or classism or, or an impractical thought process to why an Aquinnick Island regional school district wouldn't be developed. It just seems as though common sense yeah. just is not prevailing. That, that's, that's absolutely correct, Bill. I mean, all of Newport County, the six communities in Newport County, Little Compton and Jamestown send their, uh, their secondary students to other districts for, for high school. Um, and you probably, if you were reinventing things, you would figure out you probably could get away with one fewer high school among those six uh, communities if you reconfigured things. Um, and part of it is uh, tradition. I mean, the biggest issue, I actually did the merged uh, negotiations from the union side when we merged Bristol Warren in the early 1990s. And, you know, I think the biggest community objection is we're only going to have one football team and the historic rivalry went away, you know. Right. Some, some <laughs> folks still wish they had the two teams back, I think. Um, but, yeah, there's a lot of a lot we can do to uh, do better, you know. And, and, and I'm not and, – and as you know where I come from in the world, I'm not saying – and save the money. I'm saying and take the money that you save and drive it into better educational outcomes, have more programs – um, have more robust experiences for our students. Uh, and I think we could do that. Discover over 200 episodes of Rhode Island's podcast of record, the Bartholomew Town Podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your pods, or head over to our website, ripodcast.com. A few weeks ago, I had some students on the podcast discussing distance learning, and it was fascinating to me to hear how a number of them, well, first of all, there are obviously major challenges. We heard we had some students in Providence, some students in Newport that, that discussed some of their challenges, but the amount of possibilities that come from a possible hybrid model in the future where some kids said, look, being in an independent study or being out in the forest or being able to concentrate on things in a different different way really enhanced their engagement in their education. So do you think that we're in a place now where we can start to consider distance learning or certainly a hybrid model as part of a complete education package for K-12 here in the state? Well, I think that there will be wonderful opportunities. And we've done this on the margins before. We had students in, on uh, Block Island in New Shoreham uh, take high school courses from Westerly in the past. Um, there are certainly other much larger states where distance is a bigger issue, um, where this technology makes a lot of sense. I think for us, uh, using using the format we're using right now for this interview, uh, if you want not only educational opportunities, that second year of physics where you might only have three students in your high school that want to take it, but across the state, there's a critical mass and you could schedule that so they could all participate together. And we're such a small state, occasionally get together to do that. Um, have language students uh, all taking a fourth year or a fifth year of uh, Spanish or French or Chinese or anything be able to interact with each other in this format as an additional assignment so they can practice 
speaking, not only with the kids in their classroom, but with students across the state um, for extracurricular activities, uh, getting to meet uh, students in this form before you do it. Now, this, kids are already doing it anyway. I mean, even before they could do it face-to-face -face with this technology, they were, you know, what was it, IM back in the day? And yeah, they, sure. <laughs> right. You know, people were figuring it out. So putting it on a platform where it's got some education, I think that they'll take to it like ducks to water, as we say, because they're already familiar with the technology. Uh, distance learning is, is far from ideal. Um, we still think the best model is face-to-face, in-person, in the classroom, where you can in real time identify um, where, uh, where the student is and what they need. Uh, but as an enhancement, uh, as, as an ability to see interesting things and, and, and go deeper into them, it's great. Again, this happens a lot. We, you know, we have our own graduate school of oceanography at URI that has programs that go out across the world to show the work that they're doing. Um, so I think um, that one on one advantage is we have now given this technology to a lot more people who would not have had access to it. So now they have it. And I think that is going to have to be part of future school budgeting. Make sure every, and we were getting there in a lot of places anyway, but make sure every student has a Chromebook and the technology at home so they can use it. Um, having the technology, having the, the, the physical equipment without having the infrastructure at home, internet access, and that's going to, you know, that should be a lifeline, right? That's what every home should have it. Uh, every, not only every home with a student, every home should have it because no one interacting with the world. Yeah, it was, it was interesting to see and, and sad, but at the beginning of this pandemic in March, looking at internet access and realizing Obviously, in, inside the urban core, there were challenges, but also in some of the more rural parts of the state, there were places that didn't have internet access. And you go, wow, that's shocking. My colleagues in um, some of the states that are more spread out would talk about they would literally put hot spots on empty school buses and drive them into areas so that kids, you know, with antennas on them so that a whole bunch of students in the area could access because they wouldn't have it. There are states where, um, you know, they still, it's, it's still metered access where literally you're being charged by the minute and that's cost prohibitive. The governor did a good job here of dealing with the big providers and, and getting free access to those who needed it. But I think from a public policy standpoint, that's absolutely something we need to formalize, um, you know, a lifeline level of access for, for education. Um, you know, I know you've got a, uh, a new gig, uh, which I'm excited about at Rhode Island PBS. And I think they have, uh, they can play a role in this uh, as well uh, as a platform, um, for educational opportunities. And they do that already to some extent, but now I think people, uh, if they're more aware of it and that can become yet another place where we can gather resources and share them. Yeah, I was on their Wikipedia page recently, and I, I real, didn't realize it, but WSBE, their call letters, uh, State Board of Education, that's what it was created for. So that's, why not, of course, make it part of the, yeah. the integrated plat or in integrated education system. All right, last question. We're going to be in this at, at least for the remainder of this school year, right? I mean, there's, there's no real, I mean, there might be a magic wand, there might be a vaccine here or there, but are you and your members prepared for that evolution of if things get tighter again and we get more locked down or whatever it may be? Are you ready for the, the surge that may come or just making it through June? 
Yeah, I think that everybody is making a working assumption that we will be back to full distance learning at some point for a period of time. Um, we're hoping not, but I think we're psychologically prepared for that. Uh, again, why it was so important at least to have the opportunity to meet the students. Uh, it was a remarkable team effort of, of our folks to uh, get up and running in, a, in one week in March. Uh, but we already knew the students. So the advantage of using this time students so that if the switch has to flip and we're back to distance learning, um, this has been invaluable in that regard. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, the goal I want, I hope everyone gets to March for this year's graduation because by then, you know, hopefully we'll have a widespread vaccine distribution system in place and, uh, you know, frankly, a much higher herd immunity. Uh, and any day, as many days before that as we can go back to whatever the new normal is would be terrific. But yeah, I, I think there'll be, there'll be a period of time where, well, and, and for the other reasons, uh, we can, we can, uh, what, what did the commissioner say to you? Open the windows and blast the heat. That, that exactly. works. Until, that works until a certain temperature. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, my observation was for the schools that weren't ready when the governor was pushing them, in my opinion, too hard. Yeah, superintendents would have been calling snow days this week if they needed to, just because <laughs> that structure's in place too. There will be no more snow days. We'll just drop to distance learning. Well, everybody's definitely in, in a situation where, you know, I, I know a lot of teachers in, in the state that are um, my age or, you know, teachers that I had that I've been in touch with. And look, there's, there's very few people who are working harder than the education community right now. And, uh, for all the, the, the teacher bashers out there, mostly on Twitter or talk radio or what have you, um, you know, it's probably time to, to, to stop yeah. that nonsense. Well, well anyone who has uh, students in the schools and have been and tried to work with their own children doing distance learning are, are very, very high on teachers right now and education <laughs> for professionals. But sadly, with the economy the way it is, I say our stock has never been higher, but no one has the money to buy it. But that'll... That'll change too. <laughs> yeah, better. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. As always, a pleasure to spend some time together with you here on B Town. We'll see you next time. Remember to follow me on Twitter at Bill Bartholomew and on Instagram at Bartholomew Town Podcast.